Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for December 2nd, 2016. I'm your host, Brian Cardow. Very happy to welcome you into this edition of our program. It's your source each Friday for insightful analysis from California practitioners, jurists, and academics on appellate issues of salience. This week, we'll regard a pending Ninth Circuit labor law appeal with major implications for two of California's biggest agricultural employers, and we'll also explore how applying a generalist's approach in the context of specialized appeals can yield advantages and results for an appellate counsel. We'll hear first from Wen Fa, a staff attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation. Mr. Fa submitted an amicus brief in the case of Fowler Packing et al. versus Lanier in support of the agriculture industry employer plaintiffs there. In the brief, he argued that a recently enacted California statute violates the U.S. Constitution's Bill of Attainder Clause by targeting and unduly penalizing Fowler Packing and another substantial agricultural employer, Carowan Farming. The law at issue, AB 1513, was enacted in response to a, a series of California rulings invalidating employment practices that, Mr. Foss says, had been long regarded by the labor community to be legal. So the law, AB 1513, provided a, a safe harbor provision for the many employers that, as a result of those rulings, found themselves exposed to a tremendous amount of liability, both in the form of unpaid wages, but also statutory damages. The new law provided that employers could avoid these statutory damages and attorney's fees that would accrue from defending suits by timely tendering to employees and any and all due wages. But the statute did include two exceptions to that safe harbor and making it unavailable in certain instances. According to Mr. Fa, those exceptions effectively and perhaps purposefully target Fowler and Garawan, depriving them of the safe harbor provision while leaving it available to most all other employers. The exceptions, Mr. Fa says, violate the Constitution's Bill of Attainder Clause because they act effectively like a judicial punishment against the two companies, levied, of course, not by the judiciary, but the legislature. He'll enlighten us further as to the nature and background of that constitutional provision and as to how he imagines the case, which was dismissed by a federal trial court, but argued in November before a Ninth Circuit panel that voiced some skepticism over the exceptions, might resolve. Then, Myron Moskowitz, legal director of the Moskowitz Appellate Team, a boutique appellate firm in the Bay Area, will join the podcast. He'll offer particular guidance from a, a recent intellectual property appeal he handled, in which he found that employing a generalist approach within the context of appeals often handled by specialists can have benefits. Mr. Moskowitz, who has handled a, a broad spectrum of appellate matters, notes that many appellate jurists might lack the technical knowledge that, for instance, an IP appellate specialist takes for granted, being aware of this dynamic while also educating oneself, of course, in the technical details of one's appeal as much as possible, will serve an appellate attorney very well, Mr. Moskowitz says. He'll also discuss his recently published book, Moskowitz on Appeal, a comprehensive guide to all things appellate practice. In it, Mr. Moskowitz offers guidance on themes both broad and technical, advising attorneys on finding the right appeal, framing it persuasively, and presenting it to an appellate panel. Before we get to my guests, I'd like to remind you first, and as always, CLE credit is available to listeners of the podcast. There should be a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. Click through that, find the test, which pertains to this episode, and one hour of CLE credit will be yours. With that, let's move to my conversation with Mr. Wen Fa, 
in the Pacific Legal Foundation in the case of Fowler v. Lanier, argued recently before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. I'm very happy to welcome to the program now Mr. Wen Fa, a staff attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation and their, their national headquarters in Sacramento. Mr. Fa submitted an amicus brief in support of the plaintiffs in the case we'll talk about presently and also a, a Daily Journal opinion piece in the spring. Mr. Fa, welcome to the program. Brian, thanks for having me on. The case here, Fowler Packing Company v. Lanier, um, in which two major agricultural businesses are claiming they're unfairly, unfairly singled out by a California statute, um, seems to center around this constitutional question about a fairly rarely invoked clause, the, the Bill of Attainder Clause, and whether this California statute violates it. So we'll discuss that clause and its history in greater depth as we go along here. But at the outset, could you state briefly and generally what a, what a Bill of Attainder is? So the Bill of Attainder Clause is a constitutional provision that prohibits both the federal Congress and state legislatures from enacting bills of attainders, which is basically a legislative act that doles out criminal or civil punishment on specific individuals, a task that is better suited for the courts. And that's why the Bill of Attainders Clause ensures separation of power, which in turn uh, protects individual liberty. And that's why Pacific Legal Foundation is involved in this case. We're a donor-supported nonprofit that fights for individual liberty from coast to coast, and that's why we're involved in uh, trying to invalidate this AB 1513 carve-out as a invalid bill of attainder. We'll go ahead and get into AB 1513. That's the California statute at issue. It was enacted last fall and took effect in January. You write in your your, your article, the, the, your Daily Journal article from the spring, that the provenance of this statute was the fact that there were some, some labor law state court rulings that were perhaps unexpected by employer defendants and, and those results might have put those defendants at risk of liability that had been unforeseen. Um, could you give me some sense of those decisions, what they revolved around and what their holdings provided and, and why they might have been unexpected and the sorts of liability that they would they would raise? Sure. Well, in California, it's common practice to compensate employees uh, through a method called piece rate compensation, which means that if you do a task, we'll compensate you for a particular task. And it has long been understood that as long as uh, the employer compensated the workers at the end of the day in accordance with the state's minimum wage laws, and that comported with those minimum wage laws. So Gonzalez and Bluford, the two decisions that you were talking about, threw kind of a wrench in the system. So in Gonzalez versus downtown LA Motors, the Court of Appeal in California actually concluded that peace rate compensation cannot be averaged over all hours to provide compensation for what's called non-productive time. In other words, if an employee is waiting for, not actually doing work, but just waiting for a job, the court held that the employee must be separately paid an hourly wage for any time they spent waiting for that job. Two months later, there was another decision, California Court of Appeal decision, called Bluford versus Safeway. And that decision basically held that rest breaks were non-productive time, and the time that an employee spent resting in between jobs also had to be separately compensated apart from any piece rate uh, pay plan. So the legislature recognized that these decisions were in conflict with what was generally regarded as common practice among California employers. So they enacted AB 1513, which provided employers some relief from these decisions. 
I see. And particularly with this uh, sort of a safe harbor provision, could you tell me a bit more about it? You're saying that the practice is widely um, employed and it's sort of you know, it's considered legal, it's considered fine, and then these decisions come down that then expose folks to liability they wouldn't have expected. And this statute is created with a, a safe harbor that protects those, those folks. And in what way does it do that? Right. So to understand the safe harbor, I think first we have to d- understand that lawsuits after these decisions, these decisions opened up California employers to uh, tremendous damages in lawsuits. And the damages included not just back pay for complying with these uh, particular decisions, but also statutory liability and attorney's fees. So what the safe harbor did was it said, well, we understand the California legislature understands that these decisions Gonzalez and Bluford were unexpected and conflict with existing California uh, employer practices. So what the safe harbor does is it gives you an affirmative defense from a lawsuit if you pay back wages in a prompt manner. That means that an employer can say, okay, we'll make the employee whole, we'll act, we'll compensate them for all that is for all the compensation that is due in accordance with Gonzalez and Bluford, and that means that they can avoid paying uh, statutory damages and attorney's fees, which could be prohibitively expensive. So it was basically a compromise that allowed not just the employers some stability after these unexpected court decisions, but also allowed the employees to get their back pay within a reasonable time. So as you say, the safe harbor isn't protecting the employers absolutely from you know those those court decisions. They're still required to to pay the the wages that those decisions would would mandate. They just aren't exposed if they do so in a timely manner. They aren't exposed to statutory damages and, and fees, like you say. So, right, exactly. So it's sort of a win-win in some cases for both the employer and the employees. The employer gets to pay back a lot of the money that is due under, well, all of the money actually that is due under the Gonzalez and Bluford uh, decisions, and they get to not be subject to attorney's fees and statutory damages. The employees, rather than having to litigate all these cases in court and spending money on attorneys and things like that, they just get to have their money in accordance with the California Court of Appeal decisions that I mentioned moments ago. So the legislature viewed it as a win-win. Unfortunately, the legislature didn't provide this deal for everybody. Uh, this deal required some sort of political hand-wrangling in order to get it passed in the California legislature. So the legislature had to basically exclude uh, two organizations from this generally applicable deal. Let's get into that now. As you say, there's sort of two carve-outs, two exceptions to that safe harbor protection. And um, while they don't identify the the two plaintiffs involved here, as you said in your article, and they seem to only apply to the two plaintiffs that brought suit to challenge the statute. Uh, can you tell me a bit more about these carve-outs and how they, they just apply to, to Fowler and the other company involved here, Garawan? Right. So... One of the carve-outs is a uh, time-based carve-out, which says that if you filed your lawsuit be- before a certain date, uh, then then the defendant in that case cannot take advantage of the affirmative defense. So there is some dispute about that in the tr- in the trial court, but at the time that this was enacted, Gerwan was, if not the only plaintiff, but one of the only employers 
to be affected by this carve-out. The other carve-out, uh, perhaps is even more egregious because it says that if you're subject to an allegation of what's called a ghost worker claim, which means that you created fake workers on your payrolls to pad payrolls, then you cannot, just an allegation means that you cannot take advantage of this affirmative defense. So that excludes Fowler, which uh, in a lawsuit, the plaintiff in that, in that lawsuit against Fowler alleged that Fowler padded its, uh, padded its payroll with ghost workers, but that can't be right because just an allegation without any proof of wrongdoing cannot be the basis and should not be the basis to deprive an employer of an affirmative defense. So the reason, as alleged in the complaint, the reason for these carve-outs weren't that they served some sort of acceptable governmental purpose. It was to gain the ultimate support of the United Farm Workers, a popular union in the state of, a powerful union in the state of California, who ultimately could have decided whether this bill was even passed in the first place or whether it would have died in the state legislature. So that uh, that is basically the essence of our argument. Let's get a bit more into the, the Bill of Attainder Clause and, and how it applies to the statute. So um, let me back up a couple of centuries. This, uh, this practice wasn't always proscribed, right, if we're talking about the, before the Constitution, before the Bill of Attainder Clause is, is written. Um, we have some English legislatures and, and pre-colonial ones in, in the colonies, or pre-constitutional ones in, in the colonies, um, that would employ this practice. Uh, how was it practiced? Was it then, and how did it become to be outlawed so so clearly in the Constitution? Right. Well, in 17th century England, legislatures conducted criminal trials and doled out punishment all the time, and that was understood because you know our founders understood that people want power and want to have as much power as. Uh, they can they can get so the legislature pretty much served as the parliament rather pretty much served in England as the judge the jury and the executioner in those bill of attainder in the early bill of attainder cases um, at the time of the American founding one of the great geniuses of the constitution was that we separated powers we gave the judicial power to the judiciary the legislative power to the legislature and the executive power to the executive branch and that's what the bill of attainder forbids the bill of attainder forbids uh, or ensures the separation of power and forbids the legislature from doing judicial tasks such as doling out punishment on specific individuals so that's that's pretty much and there's one other historical point that i wanted to get into that I think your listeners will find very interesting. There were two traditional punishments included in the Bill of Attainders Clause uh, that were traditionally viewed as bills of attainder. One was, of course, sentencing someone to death. The other was what's called corruption of blood. That means if the parliament found someone, a noble, guilty of some sort of crime, the noble could not pass uh, his title of his or her title of nobility to his or her heirs, and that's why it's called corruption of blood, because it kind of follows that noble uh, down the line to his or her descendants. That's very fascinating. Certainly for a number of reasons, it's good that bills of attainder have been outlawed, at least partially, because there's no more remedy called corruption of, of blood, I feel like. Right. But so the, the concept seems fairly obvious. You, know, you reserve the judicial power for the judiciary, but... Uh, as you write, de- determining whether a law is is a bill of attainder isn't necessarily always so obvious. I mean, in this case, 
the plaintiffs are effectively singled out, but the, the terms of the the statute certainly don't identify them. They, they just identify behavior. Um, so how exactly do folks go about determining whether or not a statute or a law is a bill of attainder? Right. So the Supreme Court has uh, set out a two-part test. One, the statute must single out individuals, and two, the statute must impose punishment on the individuals who are singled out. For the purposes of this case, at this stage, the government doesn't even dispute that the AB 1513 carve-outs single out Fowler and Growlin. What's at issue in this case is whether the statutory carve-outs constitute punishment, and there's a three-part test to determine whether a statutory carve-out or a bill constitutes punishment. There's a, his, there's a historical test which looks at whether this legislation is similar to the source of punishment that, was, that existed in the founding and in English times. There's also the functional test, which simply looks at whether the bill functions as punishment. And there's also the motivation test, which is a inquiry in the legislature, looks to the legislative motive, and it looks to whether the legislature intended to punish uh, the uh, certain specified individuals in enacting certain legislation. So that's the three-part test to determining whether a law is a bill of attainder, is punishment within the meaning of the bill of attainder, and we believe that it absolutely is. So in, in that three-part test, if, if one of those is satisfied, then that means that the, the bill is a, effectively a punishment, right? There's not, it's not a, an and-type situation. Well, the court basically just looks at all three factors in conjunction. Uh, certainly, the courts have said that not all three factors have to all be satisfied, and courts have ruled that simply in cases where one or two of these factors were satisfied, that's enough for a, pun- for a bill to be punishment under the Bill of Attainder Clause. Yes. Okay. Um, then let's apply that test to, to the facts here, if you would. Um, why is this particular statute acting as a punishment? You say it, it deprives the affirmative defense here of these two two plaintiffs. Why uh, in, these, in any of the, the three tests would that, uh, would that satisfy the, the test? Right. So let's start with the historical analysis. The historical analysis, under the historical analysis, the court looks not to whether this punishment was exactly the same as a punishment that was doled out in the 17th century, but rather whether it contained the sort of uh, impermissible uh, the impermissible badge of infamies, some, some courts have called it, as those punishments in the 17th century. So this, the AB 1513 carve-outs are, fall under the historical forms of punishment because they pretty much deprive uh, plaintiffs of a generally applicable affirmative defense that's available to everybody else and basically brand them with a badge of infamy. What the government is doing is no different than if the government just said, well, Fowler and Growlin, you two, and you two alone are responsible, are bad actors within the state, because that's essentially what the government is doing by saying, okay, we're going to give this affirmative defense to everybody, but we're going to leave out Fowler and Growlin from the, this affirmative defense. In function, those two are identical. Notwithstanding... Oh, that the, the trial court in this in this case did rule against the plaintiffs in a, a 12b6 dismissal pretty early on. Uh, what was the the court's reasoning there? 
Well, the court's uh, reasoning was just that it was it wasn't punishment under the bill of attainder clause. As I said earlier, nobody disputed whether this singled out Fowler and Growlin. Uh, the government didn't even contest that, so the court didn't rule on that. The court just said, well, this isn't punishment. This is just a government benefit, and that's that's wrong. And that's wrong for the historical analysis that I just mentioned earlier. That's also wrong for the functional analysis because uh, a simple allegation of wrongdoing shouldn't be shouldn't be sufficient. It shouldn't be the basis for the government to deprive someone of an affirmative defense. That serves absolutely no function. And the government has pointed to no good reason why a simple allegation would uh, necessitate excluding a company like Fowler from the affirmative defense that's available to virtually all other employers in the state of California. And it also constitutes punishment under the functional test, uh, under the motivational test, excuse me, because the the author of the bill actually said that we don't want certain bad actors to blow up this whole compromise. So there's right there, there's evidence of impermissible legislative intent from someone who actually wrote the bill. So as you mentioned earlier, not all three factors have to be met for some for something to be constitu- for something to be co- punishment under the Bill of Attainder Clause. But here, all three factors are indeed met. And the AB 1513 carve-outs constitute bills of attainder. This case heard oral arguments before the, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals a couple of weeks ago. And I think similar to you, the two of the judges on the panel, Judge Watford and Judge Clifton, seemed to, to voice some pretty pointed skepticism as to the motivation behind the, these carve-outs and uh, their provenance and whether or not they could be uh, seen as licit or, or, or permissible. Um, as best you could, I, I know you obviously disagree with the um, the appellee's position here, the original defendants. But what uh, what was at oral argument their response? What are sort of maybe their their strongest arguments for why these carve outs are okay? Well, the appellees certainly get the black letter law right in a in a certain sense in that they say that the bill of attainder doesn't apply if the law doesn't punish anyone. That's absolutely true. So. If the government said, we're going to have a lottery and give three winners a million dollars, that might raise a lot of eyebrows, and that might also raise some other constitutional problems, but it wouldn't have anything to do with the Bill of Attainder Clause. Here, though, the carve-outs do actually impose punishment on Fowler and Growlin under either the historical analysis, the functional analysis, or the motivational analysis, and all for similar reasons, because it virtually places a badge of infamy, a scarlet letter, if you will, upon Fowler and Growlin by depriving them of the same generally applicable benefit that is applicable to everybody else but them. Is the, Pelley's essentially strongest point or the point they're trying to hammer home the fact that this is sort of a benefit and so the, the deprivation of it isn't a punishment? Is that where they're trying to go? Right, right. That's where they're trying to go. But, you know, I don't, I don't buy that argument all that much because if the government merely said, okay, well, the two plaintiffs here are guilty, uh, should be punished more than everybody else, uh, should pay back wages and, um, or should pay not only back wages, but also attorney's fees and statutory damages, and nobody else has to pay that. I think it's pretty clear that is punishment in making two 
employers in California pay things that other employers don't have to pay. What the government actually did was not really much different because the government said, okay, well, nobody has to pay pay these uh, statutory fees or attorney's fees, but nobody has to pay them but um, Fowler and Growlin. And that's functionally, that's pretty much the same thing. And that's why that's the, the government's argument isn't all that persuasive. Um, well, then maybe one last one to, to wrap up, having had a chance to, to listen to the arguments. Do you have any sense of, of how the panel might come down on, on this appeal? And and do you have in mind any particular uh, important impacts or takeaways, whether it comes down one way or, or the other? Well, first, a caveat. Predictions by court watchers can sometimes be very, very wrong, as I've experienced in the past. But, you know, you saw the same argument that I saw. And I think you'd agree with me that the court is skeptical of the government's reasoning in this case. Um, Judge Wa- Judges Wofford and uh, Clifton had some very pointed questions to the government that, frankly, I didn't. I don't think the government had a good answer for. So I think and hope that the court will indeed invalidate the AB 1513 carve-outs. And I, I do hope that because doing so would provide much needed relief to agricultural businesses that might be targeted next in California and also to individual liberty of people around the United States and ensuring that this powerful separation of powers clause, the Bill of Attainder Clause, it continues to offer strong protections for individual liberty. Okay. Well, we'll find out soon enough if, if that's the case. For now, we'll, we'll leave it there. Mr. Wenfa from the Pacific Legal Foundation, thanks for being on the podcast to talk about this case. I appreciate it. Okay. Thanks for having me on. One more time, that was Wen Fa, the Pacific Legal Foundation. He's a staff attorney who submitted an amicus brief in support of the plaintiffs in that case, Fowler Packing at all versus Lanier. That decision should be down within the next couple of weeks. And now we'll turn to my conversation with Mr. Myron Moskowitz on his recent book, Moskowitz on Appeal and on Applying a Generalist Approach in Specialized Appeals. We're very happy to welcome back to the podcast, Mr. Myron Moskowitz, the legal director of the Moskowitz Appellate Team, a boutique appellate firm in the Bay Area featuring tremendous depth of appellate law experience, and I believe a cohort of former California Court of Appeal jurists as well. Mr. Moskowitz, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Brian. I'm glad to be with you again. been looking forward to our discussion today about uh, an interesting topic here, namely the uh, the advantages that a an appellate attorney with a more generalist background might find in trying appeals where, uh, in areas of law where more specialist attorneys might tend to to tread. Um, but before we get into that specific topic, I wanted to ask you about your your latest book that you've published uh, called Moskowitz on Appeal. I didn't get a chance to speak with you about it last time you were on the show. Um, it's a comprehensive look at uh, a wide variety of different aspects of appellate law and practice. Um, how how did you come to conceive this book, and, and what, uh, what inspired you to, to write it? Well, uh, I, I've, I've been handling appeals for a long time um, while I was a, a law professor. And um, uh, as a law professor, I, I taught law students uh, and some lawyers uh, in, in MCLE programs how to handle appeals. And uh, in the course of doing it, I, I wrote a book uh, called Winning an Appeal, 
mainly for for law students who were just starting out to learn how to do it. And um, it, it was for people on that level. And um, I decided uh, after I retired from teaching and got into appellate practice full time, uh, I, I needed uh, to write another book that um, was not for uh, beginners, but um, uh, that was quite a bit more sophisticated. And uh, I, I think I, I've learned a lot in my practice and my teaching um, about uh, tactics and strategy for handling appeals that uh, have a lot of nuances, a lot of intuition, and um, are more suitable for uh, more advanced attorneys. And um, that's what I did. My Moscow appeal is, is quite a bit more advanced than uh, winning an appeal, which is more of a primer. So uh, I just felt at this point in my career, it's time to share uh, what I've learned with um, people on, on a higher level. Having had the opportunity to read it myself, it, it certainly does cover a lot of ground and with quite a bit of nuance and sophistication and certainly with your, your experience to, to back it up. I'd be curious to know if you've heard from uh, folks in practice who have consulted it in, in their appeals and generally how the, the reception of the book has been. Well, it's been very good, and it, it's kind of what I had hoped for. Um, lawyers who uh, are experienced and um, can appreciate uh, the insights I tried to provide have, have uh, given me very good feedback on the book and said it's uh, really helped them uh, think about things in a different way. And um, there's some tips in there, too, uh, that they found helpful. But I, I think what's more important is is the overall approach. Yeah. Maybe if you could sort of distill down that that overall approach, I know it it, it comes out in, in several different areas of the book. But what uh, what sort of is that overall philosophy to appellate law that you you preach in in the book? Well, the, the golden rule I start out with is, is try to put yourself in the shoes of the appellate justice, um, and uh, if you can, try to become an appellate justice uh, in moot courts and that type of thing, so you get a feel for how they think. And that's kind of the core of it. The, the, the typical appellate brief is uh, crowded with a lot of case law, and, and it, it starts with an assumption that uh, appellate judges are controlled uh, by precedent. And um, I, I start with from a totally different assumption, uh, and that is that uh, the judge took the job in order to achieve justice and uh, case law and precedent uh, are just one of the tools that he uses to achieve justice, and it's not the only one. So the the, uh, the brief must show him that um, the ruling for you is, is the just result. And you do that with facts, you do it with policy, uh, you do it with cases where it's appropriate, too, where, where the reasoning of the case helps show that you're going to reach a just result here. But um, uh, appellate judges are not mechanics. They're not clerks. They don't simply take prior cases, plug them in, come, and spit out a result. Uh, you've got to persuade them that um, ruling for you is, is the right thing to do. And everything is structured around that uh, in my book. Every, everything's based on that rule. So you want to be concise and, and cut out fluff that uh, detracts from that element of justice you're trying to show. Um, everything's built around that. And um, from the 
uh, statement of facts, which uh, should be written in such a way that kind of cries out for justice before you get to any argument, the introduction, the argument itself, the conclusion, everything is kind of an integrated whole that's putting forth that, that message that um, uh, if you don't rule for me, you're, you're doing the wrong thing. Okay, uh, maybe changing gears and moving from speaking about appellate or appeals generally to to one specific one that you've had recently. You told me you, you tried an appeal in an area of law, intellectual property, um, in which more specialist attorneys will will tend to to appear in, in cases um, as a a generalist, as you describe yourself. How did you prepare for for such an appeal? Well, let, let me back up a bit. I, I've been handling. Uh, appeals, mostly civil, a few criminal, uh, for many decades. And they've involved um, all areas of uh, law and um, industry. Um, So I've handled cases involving um, uh, accounting, um, uh, medicine, uh, all all sorts of things that uh, where the trial attorneys are often specialists. But I'm a generalist, and my job is often to take the the arcane language and practices in these areas and uh, communicate those to appellate judges who uh, are like me. They're generalists. They're not specialists. And, um, uh, for example, I I had a case involving uh, securities where uh, the issue involved uh, short sales of stocks. And... um, the the attorneys who were initially involved in the case who tried the case uh, drafted a brief that was very very uh, sophisticated about the securities industry, and I looked at it and I had trouble understanding it, and I knew the judges would have trouble understanding it, so I rewrote the brief in a way to make it understandable to them, and I started out the brief explaining what a short sale is, because I can't assume they even knew what that meant, uh, whereas the trial attorneys hadn't. They kind of assumed that. And that's very, very common. I see that in, in trial attorneys who specialize in medical malpractice, in uh, accounting issues, construction issues. They, they kind of assume the rest of the world knows what they're talking about when they talk about their specialty. And most of these uh, appellate judges um, you know, they come from various uh, walks of life uh, of law. Uh, a lot of them are XDAs, and uh, they don't know this stuff. And you kind of have – and the other thing is trial attorneys kind of assume that the appellate judges have read something about the case before they open the opening brief, and they haven't. The opening brief has to communicate it to them uh, from the word go. So that that's – that's my job, and I've been rather successful at it. I win most of my appeals. Um, but then I, I, I have to admit, I've been somewhat intimidated by um, intellectual property cases because I'm not an engineer. I'm not into biotech. And uh, I've seen briefs in those areas which uh, involve very arcane issues, patent cases, that type of thing. And uh, I've kind of stayed away from it. But I did happen to ha- handle one coming out of Silicon Valley uh, last year. And um, I argued the case in the Ninth Circuit. I I got some help from the trial attorneys on some of the IP issues. Uh, I argued in front of the Ninth Circuit, and uh, one of the judges on the panel, uh, who's very experienced, very bright, said, um, uh, I'm not very good at uh, technical stuff. I, I don't understand it. 
and um, it really surprised me. Sure. And it made me realize that um, uh, I, I can be very helpful to lawyers in, in that specialty. Uh, and then after that, I happened to read um, about some federal circuit case. Now, the federal circuit is one of the few appellate courts that does specialize. Um, they handle only patent and IP cases. And um, uh, one would think that the Supreme Court that is above them um, would defer to them. And I read a series of cases where they didn't. Th these generalists on the Supreme Court uh, kept reversing the federal circuit, uh, the specialists. And um, I read the Supreme Court cases, and I felt the Supreme Court was right, that the, the federal circuit was too narrow, and they hadn't really taken into account general principles of law that cut across all appeals. And, and I felt um, there's a place for me. There's a place for a generalist, uh, even in the federal circuit. So, um, you know, uh, I think Holmes said uh, the law is a seamless web. And uh, I think that's true. I, I think the, the, the legal principles, the, the principles of appellate advocacy cut across all areas of the law. It doesn't matter what it is. And that includes intellectual property. And that doesn't mean I can do it all by myself. I would need the, the help of a trial attorney and understanding some of the technical stuff. But I, I think a generalist uh, is better positioned to uh, explain things and argue things uh, to an appellate court. Sure. It was perhaps the most significant advantage, as you say, that you might be looking at, at the case and the law through perhaps a kind of a similar prism as the, the justices that will, will try the case as compared to a, an attorney who only focuses on those sort of cases and, and nothing else? Yeah, I, I mean, they tend to be um, technical, you know, that they, they get into the technical issues of the uh, product involved, of the law. Um, they uh, assume a little too much knowledge on the part of the appellate judges. Um, they assume, like most attorneys do, that um, uh, precedent is the most important thing. Uh, I don't. Uh, I, I think uh, justice is the most important thing. Achieving a just result and precedent is just one tool in that. So, um, you know, the average reversal rate is, is a little under 20 percent. Uh, and, and my average reversal rate when I represent the appellant is close to 70 percent. So. Um, I, I think I know what I'm doing when I, I take these cases in, in uh, uh, a wide spectrum of um, industries and issues and um, pretty much look for the same thing in all of them, trying to achieve, achieve a just result. And um, when, when I feel that can't be done based on the record, because uh, we're all stuck with the same record on appeal, I can't change that. When I feel it can't be done based on the record, uh, I usually advise the people um, settle or uh, find some other way to resolve it because um, this appeal is not winnable. So some advantages there to being a, a generalist. Um, but would you advise other appellate counsel to have in mind some potential challenges that you do face when you encounter a new area of law you're not terribly familiar with? Yeah, uh, you, you got to learn it. But, it, you know, that's something I do as a matter of course. I, I did have one patent case in my career. Somebody called me uh, to appeal a patent case to the federal circuit. 
I had never taken a patent case. So uh, I made an appointment to meet with a trial attorney. Um, and the day before I, I met with him, I went to the law library and got a treatise on patent law and uh, read through it. And the next day I was able to meet with him and learn from the trial attorney uh, about the technical aspects of the patent and the invention and that type of thing. And uh, ended up writing a brief that uh, resulted in settling the case. But um, it, it's not that hard. I mean, I do this type of thing all the time with various areas of law that I start out with uh, knowing nothing about. And uh, you learn it. But, um, it, you know, the law is is uh, important, but uh, it's not the most important thing. Uh, I can usually talk to somebody about a case right in the beginning and um, get a feel for whether we have a chance of winning the appeal uh, without having researched any law. The, the, is there something there that, that reeks of uh, injustice uh, or not? <laughs> if there isn't, or if all the justice is on the other side, uh, I need to know that too. What are the most important lessons that you might have taken away from that experience, either, say, for, for a generalist or a more specialist attorney? Should generalists feel less daunted to take on um, specialist-type cases? Should specialists bear in mind more often the fact that you know they'll tend to face jurists who are themselves generalists? Yeah, I, I, that, that's a good way of summing it up, Ryan. I, I, I think you're right on both counts. I think um, uh, specialist attorneys, um, I, I see this a lot. Uh, uh, somebody consulted me on, on a products liability case recently, a big case, and um, they wanted a, an appellate attorney who specialized in products liability. Uh, I told them I thought they were making a mistake, and, and, and we'll see what happens. But um, I, I think at a, at a minimum, uh, if, if someone brings in uh, uh, an attorney who specializes or th they want to take the appeal themselves, that often happens. The trial attorney who's a specialist wants to do the appeal. At a minimum, bring in a generalist to review the brief, review the draft brief, and, and give you some input as to uh, what the best approach is. Because... Um, Quite often, I, I see briefs all the time that are almost unintelligible because uh, the, the person who wrote it is, is so into their own area. Um, they're, they're basically writing for someone who knows as much about that specialty as they do. And uh, that's not the panel they're going to get. They're going to get people that don't. Um, so if you want to win the appeal, which is what I'm into, <laughs> uh winning um bring in a generalist sure. maybe one last one uh speaking not of specialist or generalist attorneys but of of courts uh, as you say by and large appellate courts are courts of, of general jurisdiction that hear all sorts of different matters uh, with the exception of the federal circuit um is that the way that you think it, it should be? Do you think there would be some benefit of, say, like the Ninth Circuit were splintered up and, and some panels would hear immigration, some hearing IP, things like that? Or is it good that courts do have that uh, general approach? I, I don't know. Another example along the lines of the Federal Circuit would be the, the Bankruptcy uh, the Court of Appeal, sure. um, which is specialized. Um, this has been debated uh, uh, by people uh, for a long time. 
most appellate judges are, are against specialty. Um, uh, criminal, too. In, in Texas, I think, is one case that has a, a separate uh, criminal uh, Supreme Court for uh, criminal appeals. To, um, I, I think most judges believe, and I, I tend to agree with them, that um, legal principles cut across all areas of the law, and the basic principles are, are very similar. Um, specialized knowledge uh, can be very helpful. But um, uh, I gave the example earlier of, of the U.S. Supreme Court overruling the federal circuit uh, several times. And um, each time I, I thought the Supreme Court got it right, that the uh, federal circuit was was uh, too narrow and too rigid and, and too into their kind of their own specialty, thinking it was unique when um, it, it's really not. I mean, the appellate courts are there to provide justice. And uh, that, that cuts across everything. And uh, uh, competent appellate judges can uh, handle any area. So um, I, I think as a general matter, I, I'd be against uh, specialty appellate courts uh, with some maybe some rare exceptions mm-hmm. like bankruptcy or, you know, maybe patent law. But um, I think it's generally uh, better to have generalists do it. As a result of this appeal, do you think you might find yourself back in a in an intellectual property case appeal in the future? Well, I'd like to. Yeah, I, I found it really interesting, and I, I certainly enjoyed working with the uh, the IP trial attorneys. Very bright, very competent, and um, we work very well together. So um, um, they helped me with stuff I didn't know, and I think they were helped by my approach. And uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure we're going to win the appeal. Mr. Myron Moskowitz, legal director of the Moskowitz Appellate Team, we always appreciate your insights and congratulations again on the book. Thanks, Brian. Enjoyed talking to you. And with that, our program for December 2nd, 2016 is complete. I'd like to take this opportunity one more time to tender sincere gratitude to both of my guests, Mr. Wen Fa from the Pacific Legal Foundation, and Mr. Myron Moskowitz, the Moskowitz appellate team. I'd like to thank you, our listener, also for tuning in. It's greatly appreciated. Don't forget, CLE credit is available for your having listened. There should be a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. Thanks go out to two members of my production staff here, including Nicholas Sonnenberg, Helen Ireland, Helen Enriquez, and of course our editor, David Houston. I'm Brian Cardell. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. Mm-hmm.